Hey there, I'm Lauren Hicks, pastor of Pacific Christian Center in Santa Maria, California. Thank you for joining us for today's podcast. It's my prayer that this message strengthens your faith and draws you closer to God. Now enjoy today's message. Grab your Bible, if you will, turn with me to the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Maybe you have a Bible app on your smartphone, you'd like to power that up at this time. We have been in a series for a few months now on the life of David, and today we're going to conclude that series. I'm a little sad about that, personally, I've just so enjoyed studying the life, this remarkable man in the Old Testament and what the Lord did in his life and what we can learn from this story, and I hope that these series of messages have blessed you. I hope that they've been an inspiration in your life. I hope they've encouraged you and helped you grow in your faith. I hope that you fought some giants. Anybody fight some giants during this series? Let the Lord speak to your hearts. Three, four of you, maybe, all right. I'm with you. I've fought, been fighting some giants, too. And uh, I hope that this message, this message series has encouraged you in the Lord and helped you grow in your faith and that we've taken some steps forward. And those messages, all these messages are on our YouTube channel. If you haven't subscribed to Pacific Christian on YouTube, you ought to do that and uh, get notifications and um, be able to go back and review uh, the messages that are there. Lots of Sundays I go home and I watch the entire service all over again. It's just so good. I got to do it all over again. Uh, but uh, I'm so glad that you're here in the service this morning. Welcome to those who are watching online. Can we give them a hand today, everybody, whether you're local or you're around the country or around the world or you're watching this service sometime after uh, it's been broadcast we're so glad to have you here today second samuel chapter 12 we'll read scripture here in just a moment i want to share a message with you simply today called how to be restored to god how to be restored to god couldn't help this week but think as i was preparing this message about God's restoration power in our lives, of thinking about stories of people that I know who God has restored their life. By the way, how many of you God restored your life? I mean, your relationship with the Lord. Many hands lifted here today, and we give God all the praise for how he works in our lives and how the Lord's never given up on us and how when we have stumbled and we have fallen, there's a few of us in this room that on our journey of faith we have stumbled and fallen. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but... We, we know who you are, no? <laughs> I'll be the first to lift my hand. Aren't you glad the Lord picks us up when we fall? Aren't you glad that he restores us? I'm so thankful that God never gives up on us. But one Saturday, uh, I was at home, and I got a phone call. This was many years ago. And a dear friend of mine was on the phone. This is a dear brother that had come to faith in the, in the church, and they had come uh, during a difficult time in their lives. They come to the Lord, and, and um, you know, many, many people come to faith in Christ during crisis and during difficult times, and maybe that's your testimony, your story, that it was the hard times that brought you to the Lord, and their family had come to faith, and it had been an honor for me to serve them and to, to lead their family to the things of the Lord, but there had been a lot of history in this family of addiction, a lot of history of alcoholism and drug abuse in this family, and 
And the Lord had gloriously worked in this family's life and had had touched them in a powerful way and had brought deliverance and set them free in their beautiful testimony. But I got a call one Saturday uh, from the the father, from the husband of this family, and uh, he was weeping on the phone. I recognized his voice instantly. And he called me and said, Pastor, I just want to know. He said, I'm so sorry to call you on a Saturday. He said, but could you meet me at the church? Could you meet me at the church? And he began to, as he, through tears, began to tell the story of how he had fallen back into drugs and how he, in fact, he was high when he was on the phone with me, calling me on that Saturday. And uh, I I said, friend, are you sure you can make it to the church? Do you need me to come pick you up? I was wondering if it was safe for him to drive or not. I didn't know what his situation was. He said, oh, pastor, I think I can meet you there. And can I tell you that on that Saturday afternoon, God met me and him there at an old-fashioned altar, and he prayed through to God, and God gloriously set him free. if, If you want to know if God can sober somebody up, I can tell you he can absolutely do it. And I, right in front of my eyes, I watched, I watched God sober him up as he, he left his tears on the altar and God gloriously restored him and turned his life around and his life is a tremendous testimony. And I think there are people in this room today with stories like that. Maybe the circumstances are different. Maybe your story is not addiction and maybe you didn't call your pastor on a Saturday, but you know what it's like to fall and to stumble and to have to get back up. And maybe you fell and stumbled again and to get back up again. And you've experienced the wonderful grace and mercy of God or how he picks us up and turns our life around and how that God brings restoration into our lives. Maybe you hear that today, in this service, and you'd say, Pastor Lauren, I'm here, and nobody knows really what's going on in my life, but I have messed up, and I have fallen into sin. Maybe today you walked into this church just wondering, just wondering if God could forgive you, wondering if your relationship with the Lord could be restored. I love the Bible. How many of you love the Bible? Anybody love the Bible? I love the Bible. And if you don't love the Bible, ask God to help you to love the Bible. And I believe God will give you a love for his word. But one of the things I love about the Bible is the honesty of the scripture. You see, God doesn't candy coat anything. God doesn't polish it up. It's not just the stories, good stories of nice, holy, saintly people whose lives are perfect and all put together. There are a lot of victory stories in the Bible, but there's also a lot of honest stories where God tells us the nitty-gritty, God tells us the bad stuff, where people have fallen, people have struggled. And so we get a real honest picture of the people of God. Not only do we get to see their victories, but we also get to see their failures. I mean, I think about Abraham, who lied, and his son Jacob, who also lied. And then Noah got drunk, and then there was Moses. He killed a guy, and Samson was immoral, and Gideon was fearful, and Jonah ran away in disobedience to God, and Peter denied Jesus not one time, but three times. I mean, the Bible is full of stories like this. But we serve a God who is rich in mercy. We serve a God whose love is unfailing. His grace is amazing. We serve a God who can pick us up when we fall. He is a God of second chances. We serve a God who restores those who are fallen. So when we sin and when there's failure in our lives, we may wonder if God could forgive someone like us. Can our relationship with God be restored? 
The answer this morning is yes, God can restore. Yes, he can forgive. Yes, he is merciful. Yes, his grace is amazing. Yes, his love for you has not run out. He is a God who restores, a God who restores. He's willing to give us mercy and restoration. David's experience teaches us the process of how to be restored to God. I want us to look at it together. 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. The Bible says, The Lord sent Nathan, this is Nathan the prophet, to David. When he came to him, he said to David, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he bought. And he raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food and drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. And this lamb was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Notice verse 7, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if this had not been enough or if this has been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Verse 11, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get up, from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. Just a little hint here on the text. The servants were afraid that David might take his own life here. Verse 19, David noticed among the attendants that they were whispering amongst themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, he re they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, he put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food. And he ate. Now, just a 
a little bit of context on this story because there might be some of you here this morning who were not here last week. During David's reign as a king, this was a relatively peaceful time. David had sent it to the throne. He had command over all of Israel and Judah. What his wealth had grown, his popularity had grown. He was a leader in high esteem. The Bible tells us in chapter 11 that it was the time of the year in the spring when the kings go off to war and David would have been there to protect his lands, should have been there to protect his lands, the land of Israel, the people of Israel, and war for those that would attack against him. The Bible says in chapter 11 that David sent his general and his soldiers off to war, but David decided to stay home, and that was a terrible decision for David. He was not where he was supposed to be. And the story is unfolded. We see that one afternoon David uh, goes out onto his balcony and he looks down and he sees a woman named Bathsheba. He didn't know that was her name at the time, but he sees a woman and she was bathing. And the Bible says she was very beautiful. And David not only caught a glance of her, but David turned that glance into a gaze. That gaze turned into a stare. The longer he looked, the more lustful desire rose up within David. He asked his servants, go find out who that woman is. The response comes back. She is the daughter of so-and-so and the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who is serving in battle with your men on the, on the battlefield right now. And in that response was a little warning. By the way, not only is she the daughter of this man, but she is also a wife. She's someone's wife. So David, um, you know, you need to be careful. But David didn't hear any of that. The words went in one ear and out the other, and he called for her. And the scripture says that she came to him, and they spent the night together, and she became pregnant. The chapter ends by letting us know that the thing that David did displeased the Lord. When word came to David that she was pregnant, David was in a panic. What am I going to do? How can I hide my sin? How can I cover my sin? It's about to become known to everyone what has happened here. And David comes up with an ingenious plan. He decides to call Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, home from the battlefield to give him a little, you know, R&R, &R, to give him a break for the battle, to give him some time off and some time of rest. And, he, and David thought, you know, if I, if I bring him home, he'll go home, he'll spend time with his wife, and then people would just think, well, this baby belongs to Uriah. Remember when he came home from the battle. But Uriah was a man of honor and refused to go into his own home. He said, how can I go into my own home and eat and and drink and spend time with my wife when my fellow soldiers are in the open battlefield and they're under attack right now. How can I do such a thing? It's not right. And David even brings him into his home and wines him and dines him. And the scripture says exactly, David got him drunk, thinking that in a drunken stupor that Uriah might go home and be with his wife. But even in his drunkenness, he had more integrity than David. And so David wrote a letter and sealed a letter in an envelope and he puts it in the hands of Uriah to take back to the general. And in the letter, was instructions for the general to put Uriah at the front of the battlefield where the fighting was the fiercest. And when he is up front, pull the soldiers back so that Uriah would be killed. Uriah walks back to the battlefield carrying his own death warrant in his hands. Word gets back to David. But again, the Bible says the thing that David did displeased the Lord. For about a year, David lives in misery. He conducted the affairs of state like any king would. He met with the same people. He kept the same schedule. Everything was the same on the outside, but on the inside, everything had changed. I believe for an entire year, David was haunted 
by the vivid memory of his sin. Filled with guilt, David begins to deteriorate physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Can I remind you this morning that sin will cause you to pay a heavy price? Can I remind you that sin takes a toll on you? It is a heavy burden to carry. We must see in this story that there is a price to pay for our sins. We read the story and we learn so much, but that's certainly a warning that comes from the pages of the Bible that there is a price to pay for our sins. And David is exhausted. He has eaten up inside. Bible scholars believe that Psalm chapter 32 was written during this season of his life. Psalm chapter 32 says, David said these words, when I kept silent, in other words, when sin was in my heart and nobody knew about it, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. David is writing about his emotional state. He's writing about how sin took a toll on him spiritually and even physically. David is suffering, but nothing compared to the impact of sin on his relationship with God. For a year, David lives in silence, the agony of silence from God. For perhaps a full year, the heavens were shut against David. It reminds us of the words of Psalm chapter 66, verse 18, which says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. After a service some years ago, I was praying with individuals who come up after service. We do this just about every week. We have opportunity for prayer. We want you to have an encounter with the Lord. And so if we can pray with, pray with you, we will do that today after this service. But we were praying with different individuals, and a man came up to me after service. And he said these words to me. He said, Pastor Lauren, he said, I cannot worship. I said, what do you mean, friend? What do you mean? We just had a great service. What do you mean you can't worship? He said, I can't worship. He said, I can't feel the presence of God. He said, would you pray for me that I would be able to feel the presence of God? I mean, we had just had a dynamic service like this morning. How many of you felt the presence of the Lord here this morning? God is here in this place. And, and we had had that kind of a service. And he said, I cannot feel the presence of God and I cannot worship. And it, immediately the Holy Spirit quickened my heart, spoke to my heart. I knew what the, what the reason was because I had been where this man was at. And I asked him the question. I said, is there sin in your life? And the man began to well up with tears and he said, yes, pastor. Yes, pastor, there is sin in my life. Have you ever been there in your life where you were living in willful sin, where there was sin in your heart, where you knew that you were not where you needed to be with the Lord? You cannot have willful sin in your life and walk into this auditorium, as powerful as this service has been, and, and, and feel the presence of God and lift your hands with joy and worship and celebrate. You cannot do that. Why? Because there is something that hinders that relationship with God. There is something that blocks that relationship with the Lord. But when we come to a place of forgiveness, when we come to a place of confession and repentance and we pour it out before the Lord and we experience His grace and His mercy, there is a freedom that comes back into our soul. There's a peace of God that floods back in. The presence of the Lord fills our hearts and our lives. In forgiveness there is freedom. In forgiveness there is the peace of God. In forgiveness there is restoration. Think about David, how agonizing this year must have been for him. 
to be living in this place where he has not confessed, living in this place where he has not repented of his sins, living in this place carrying the heavy burden of sin. It took a toll on him physically and emotionally and spiritually. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And God waits approximately one year to confront David. The child that David and Bathsheba had conceived had been born. Bathsheba had given birth to a son. And God waits. Why? Why does God wait? God always has a purpose in the waiting. How many of you know that? If God makes you wait, there's a reason. God doesn't play games with us. God, if he's making you wait in your life, there's a reason. And God made David wait. And I think God was letting David wait until David reached the end of himself. Until David could not take it any longer. Until David uh, was in a place where he was about to be humbled. He waited until he was ready. And I believe that God waited because God's plan for David was for him to be restored, not destroyed. God's plan was for him to be restored. And it's a good reminder to all of us here today and those of you watching online, God's will for your life is restoration. God's will for your life is restoration. If you have fallen into sin, God wants to restore you, not destroy you. If you have tripped up on the journey of faith, if you've fallen back into some lifestyles that don't please the Lord, if you have succumbed to temptation and have entered into some ways of living that are sin and you're doing some things just like David that did not please or does not please the Lord, I want you to know that God brought you here today to tell you that he wants to restore you, not to destroy you. He wants to restore you. In John chapter 3, verse 17, you're familiar with 16, aren't you? John chapter 3, verse 16, anybody know that? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We're familiar with that one, but we're not as familiar with verse 17. John chapter 3, verse 17 tells us, For God did, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God did not send Jesus to condemn you. He did not. You're condemned already. We're condemned by our own sin. God did not come to put his thumb down on us and to smash us and to destroy us. No, he came to save us. To save us, that's what he did. And so God sends a prophet by the name of Nathan to confront David. And he does so by telling him a story. And as the story goes, he says there was in a certain town two men, a rich man and a poor man. A wealthy man and a man who doesn't have very much. And the Bible tells us that the wealthy man has a lot of sheep and cattle. He was very successful. Another man, in stark contrast, had very little. What he did have, though, was one little ewe lamb that he treated like the family pet. And we're told that this lamb would be right there with the family. I can't really imagine having a sheep in my house, but right there with the family and said he's sitting at the table eating eating with the family he said he'd even drink out of his cup you know can you imagine he's giving you a little lamb the lamb sleeping in the bed with him right it's, and the bible says the lamb was like a daughter to the poor man and his family but one day a traveler came to town and he's needed a good place to stay and he's needing a good meal and so he stays at the rich man's house and the Bible tells us the story that Nathan tells David. That the rich man gladly takes the stranger into his home, instructs his household help to prepare a delicious meal 
But instead of going out to his own flocks and taking one of his own sheep or one of his own goat or one of his own cattle, he goes and he sneaks around back to where the poor man lives and he takes that one ewe lamb and he slaughtered it and he cooked it for the visitor. And on the table they had herb-crusted rack of lamb. David himself, who used to be a shepherd, grew up in a shepherd family in Bethlehem, who was, when we are introduced to David in the scripture, is out with the sheep in the fields. David hears the story. He is furious. I can imagine that he is red in the face. His fists are clenched. The veins are popping in his neck. He is so furious that such a cold man, such cold heartlessness could exist within the kingdom. He cannot allow this to go on in Israel. And he quickly pronounces his sentence. In verse 5, David says back to the prophet Nathan, Surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He will pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. It's interesting, this idea of paying four times goes back to the Old Testament law in Exodus chapter 22, verse 1, in the law of Moses that says, whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five head of cattle for an ox or four sheep for a sheep. And so what David is doing here is he's repeating the law of Moses saying, if you take one lamb, you've got to pay four back. But David believed that the law of Moses was too lenient. Not just would he have the man pay back four lamb for the one he took, but because he was indifferent to the poor man, when he had so many of his own lambs that he could choose from, David said that the rich man deserved death for this offense. And now we have the most dramatic moment in the whole story. In a very calm voice, the prophet Nathan says to David, You are the man. I suspect that there was a powerful pause before Nathan continues to let that truth sink into David's heart. Then Nathan the prophet says to David, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you. Who chose you to be king? I anointed you king. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I have given you this palace. I have given you your wives. And he said, you have everything you need. You have everything you could ever want. And the Lord said to him, if, that's, if that wasn't enough for you, I, I could have given you more. You, you, don't, you don't have enough wealth. You don't have enough. I could have given you more. He says, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down. I mean, just, just imagine this scene. Nobody knows, right, except Joab in the battlefield, right? And David knows what has happened. We're not even sure if Bathsheba knows what David did here. All she knows was that her husband was killed in battle. We're not even sure if she knows. You struck down Uriah the Hittite, the Lord says, with the sword, and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And in response, David's words were few. I mean, what could David say? There was no excuse. There was no justification. No reason for him to do what he did. His only response was this, and it was the right response. I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. David recognized 
what we all need to recognize, that all sin is ultimately against God. David had broken God's laws. He had stepped outside of God's will for his life. When you look at the story, we discover that David has broken three of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not commit adultery. And you shall not murder. What has David done? David has used Bathsheba. He has betrayed Uriah. He has shamed his family. He has disgraced his nation but he has sinned against the Lord. And when David finally admits it, even though he deserves death, God in this moment, being the God that he is, shows David grace. Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Now, I thought about this a lot this week. If David had lived today, He might have tried to ease his troubled conscience by one of the many popular methods that people use today when they are confronted by their sins and their mistakes. David could have tried rationalizing. He could have said, I mean, come on, Nathan. I mean, everybody makes mistakes. Surely God will understand. He could have tried to shift the blame. He could have said, it's Bathsheba's fault. I mean, if she hadn't have been so beautiful, I mean... If she hadn't have been bathing in plain sight, I mean, I would have never fallen for her. Or he could have tried the popular method of justifying. He could have said, well, you know, Nathan, I mean, I, 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 I shouldn't have done it at all, but, you know, Bathsheba, she wasn't happy with Uriah. I mean, actually getting rid of him was the best thing I could have done for her, right? I, I, and so we see these different methods that, We use today, instead of owning our sin, instead of confessing our sin, instead of repenting of our sin, we rationalize or we shift the blame or we justify. But we learn in this story that while God forgave David of his sins, there was still an earthly consequence. God in the story would strike the child born to Bathsheba with an illness and within seven days the boy would die. We learn that while God's forgiveness is always offered to the sincere and repentant person. His forgiveness does not always protect us from the earthly consequences of our sin. So what would David do now? Could David be restored to God? It's in Psalm chapter 51 that we see David's prayer to the Lord after this moment. Psalm 51 is David's prayer of confession and repentance to the Lord. I want you to let these words sink into your heart. Here's what David says to the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin are always before me. David couldn't get it out of his mind and heart. It's always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So God, you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant to me a willing spirit to sustain me. The psalm goes on in his powerful, vivid prayer of confession and repentance to the Lord. We're so thankful to know the story that God's grace was available to David, his mercy was new in David's life. God forgave David of his sin. But being restored in our relationship with God involves a few things that we see in this story. First of all, it always, can I say again, always involves confession and repentance. Being restored to God always involves confession and repentance. It always requires an honest, honest and sincere admission of our guilt. As long as we hide it away, as long as we sweep it under the rug, as long as we try to keep our own sins away from God and from others, there is no restoration. Confession and repentance is an honest and sincere admission of guilt. What does confession mean? Do I have to confess to the pastor? Do I have to go to the priest and have to confess? Some people believe it that way. I'm thankful today that we don't have to confess to man, that we can confess to God. Um, uh, but there is, by the way, the scripture talks about in the New Testament, confess your sins to one another and be healed. That there is confession, in com there is healing in community. And that healing, that restoration happens because now the, our secret is exposed and now we have others that can journey with us. We are not alone in our struggle. And there's tremendous strength of that. In fact, we find freedom, I think, in community. I told the men uh, on a Friday night, I said, we suffer in isolation, but we find healing in community. We find healing in community. And, and so, so there's this point of confession. And what confession means is simply to say the same thing as. That's what confession means. To say the same, same thing as. It means to agree with God that our sin was an act of rebellion. And the reason David was forgiven is not just because he wrote a poetic Psalm 51. He was forgiven because he was truly repentant. Verse 32, as I told you, was written during that year of agony. In verse 5 of chapter 32 in Psalms, David says, Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And you forgave me. And my guilt is gone. How many of you have experienced that in the Lord? That he has forgiven us and our guilt is gone. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, such a powerful verse. In the New Testament it says, If we confess our sins, He, speaking of God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from unrighteousness. That's a promise from the Word of God. And if you're here today and there's willful sin in your life, the Word of God, the authority of the Word of God, if you will confess your sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you and to purify you, from all unrighteousness. We see in the pattern here in David's life that confession and repentance require a desire to make a clean break from sin. 
Repentance is a complete turn. It's a 180. I was going this direction and now I am going this direction. Sometimes I'm asked, Pastor Lauren, how do I know if I've truly repented? That's a wonderful question, isn't it? How do I know? I mean, I want to repent of my sin. How do I, did I do it right? Did I do it wrong? How do I know if I, I did it right? When a person repents, they change their way of thinking. Change thinking leads to change behavior. Repentance leads us to a new way. If we continue in our transgression, we continue in our sin, we are not in repentance. Repentance is a turning and a walking in the other direction in the way that God would have for us. Confession and repentance always requires a broken and a humble spirit. There is a godly sorrow, the Bible says, that sin brings. And when we recognize that godly sorrow, that sorrow brings us to God in repentance. When we recognize that we've sinned against the Lord, there cannot be a flippant attitude about it. There cannot be a justification about it. There has to be a sincereness in our hearts before the Lord, a broken and a humble spirit. Verse 17 of Psalm 51 says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart to you, God, you will not despise. And later on in the psalm, David says, I'm not going to bring you sacrifices because that's not what you desire. In other words, he's saying, David is saying, God, you don't desire that I would just come in church and lift my hands and worship the Lord and act like nothing has happened. That's not what you desire. He said, I have a broken and a contrite spirit and that, Lord, you will not despise. You will not turn away. So with our confession and our repentance is a broken and a humble spirit. And finally, a willingness to receive God's forgiveness and restoration. The team's coming. A willingness to receive God's forgiveness and restoration. Here's the beautiful part. This is where faith comes in. This is where faith comes in. We must believe that Jesus died in our place on the cross. Jesus took the penalty for our sins. Jesus died for me and he died for you. And you might be asking the question, why? Why would Jesus have to die on the cross? Why would Jesus die for me? Why would Jesus die for you? And the answer to that question is because we are sinners. We need a savior. We are sinners. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3 verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, There is none righteous, not even one. And that means all of us, no matter who we are, where we're from, what our background is, all of us have sinned, all of us have failed God, all of us have made mistakes, and all of us need a Savior. And so Jesus, compelled by love that we'll spend eternity trying to understand, decides to leave the glory of heaven and come down to earth and to take your sin and my sin and King David's sin and put it on the cross once and for all. Jesus paid the awful penalty penalty for our sins. God's justice must be satisfied. He is loving and gracious and merciful, but he is also just and his justice must be satisfied. In mercy, God pays the price for us. That's where faith comes in. We must believe, we must believe this truth and we must receive this forgiveness and restoration. Some will say in a moment like this and maybe question of your heart in this moment is could God forgive someone like me? Could God forgive someone like me? Maybe you've heard the lie of the enemy. Maybe you've heard the whisper of the enemy. God can save some people, but he can't save you. 
Maybe you've heard the lie of the enemy. God would love some people, but God could never love somebody like me. I mean, I know everything I've done. I know, I know it all. All my sins, all my failures, all my mistakes. How could God love me? I don't even love me. How can he do it? How could he do it? God brought you here today, friend, to let you know God can save farthest away. The one who's done the most, whoever it is, God can save. There's no one beyond God's reach. There's no one beyond God's ability to save. There's no one that His Holy Spirit can't draw to the Savior. Maybe you're here today and you have children or grandchildren that are away from God and you have wondered, could God save my family? Could He save them? I'm here to encourage you. Yes, He can. Yes, He can. He can save your family. Yes, He can. We just have to believe. A willingness to receive God's forgiveness and restoration. I want you to see something as we close. God did not send the prophet Nathan to condemn David. He sent him to David so that David could experience the mercy of God. God's desire for David was not destruction, but deliverance. God's desire for you is not destruction, but deliverance. He is a loving and merciful God who wants to restore. Maybe you walked in this place today with a guilty conscience. Maybe you walked in this room with a heavy heart. Maybe you know there's some willful sin in your life. Maybe there's a heaviness. Maybe you're like the man I talked about who couldn't feel the presence of God and you just can't worship with freedom today. Maybe you have this heavy burden that you have carried as you walked in here today. Today, in this moment, in God's mercy, He's provided a way for you to receive forgiveness and freedom. And it comes to Him, it comes to us through confession and repentance as we put our faith in God. Would you let Him cleanse you today? Would you let Jesus wash away all your sins with His precious blood? Would you let Him make you new this morning? Would you let Jesus restore your relationship with Him? Would you let Him do it today? Would you let Him do it? Maybe you once knew the Lord. Maybe you once lived for God. But today you know that you're not where you need to be with the Lord. Today God brought you here because He's a God of restoration and He wants to restore your life today. Amen, everybody. Amen. Oh, stand up, everybody. I got to stop. Praise God. Praise God. Father, today we thank you for your word that speaks so powerfully to our hearts. What can we say? But oh, thank you, God, that you're a God that restores. You're a God who saves. You're a God who forgives. You're a God who turns our lives around. You're a God who picks us up when we fall. Oh, thank you, Lord, that your mercy is new every day. Thank you, God, that your grace is amazing. Thank you that your love never runs out. Thank you that you're a compassionate Heavenly Father that when we come to you with a sincere and a broken heart, we come to you with confession and repentance. You're a God who wraps us in your arms of love. You're my son, you're my daughter, and you restore us when we fall. God, I thank you that you've never given up on us. You've never given up on me. You've never given up on anybody in this room. You've never given up. Thank you, God. You're a God of restoration. With our heads bowed today, this sermon, this, sermon, this message calls for a response. And I wonder if you're here today with no one looking around. This is just a quiet, reverent moment in the house of the Lord. If you're here today, you'd say, Pastor Lord, I need to be restored. I don't need to know the details about it. God already knows. But you're here today and you say, Pastor Lord, I need God's restoration in my life. I want you to put your hand up. Just hold it up. 
Just hold it. Be courageous today. Don't leave here without it. You're here today. I need God's restoration. Yes, several hands. Several hands. Praise God. I see you up in the balcony too. Several hands. I need God's restoration in my life. Several hands here today. Oh, praise God for what he's doing in this place. We're going to leave here different than we came in Jesus' name. We're going to leave here today. So let me pray with you right now. Why don't we lift our hands all over this house today to the Lord. Can we do this today, Father? We thank you for the opportunity to come back to you. You're a God who heals and restores. You're a God who sets the captives free. You're a God who picks us up when we fall. You're a God who saves and forgives and restores. And today I pray, Lord, for my friends in this room right now that need this moment of confession and repentance. Father, that right now they would take this opportunity with a sincere and a broken heart to give an honest confession to their Heavenly Father. This moment, Lord, we confess. We offer our repentance. Jesus, we ask you to forgive us, to cleanse us, to wash us, make us new, restore us. Lord, we pray what David prayed in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Restore me, Lord. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room today who need restoration in Jesus' name, that they would be restored today, that you would do your good work in their hearts and that we would leave here today different than we came. We may have walked in carrying a heavy load of guilt and shame. We may have walked in here carrying the burden that sin makes us carry, but today we bring that burden to the foot of the cross and we release it there. And we leave here today with freedom. We leave here today with victory. We leave here today with joy in our hearts because we have been restored by our wonderful Savior. We love you. And we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Let's worship together. Once again, thank you for joining us for today's podcast. Special thanks to those of you who give so generously to make this ministry possible. If God has put it on your heart to give, please visit our website at pacificchristian.net. And if you enjoyed today's message, please consider subscribing, sharing with your friends on social media, and giving us a rating in iTunes. This will enable us to expand our reach and share the message of Christ with more people. Until next time, God bless you.